the guy I told you about yesterday with the seven passports, that was something he said. We didn't ask each other questions because everybody was reporting to somebody. And so just, you didn't ask partly because everybody was doing it, partly because nobody would tell you the truth. And it just showed you didn't know how life worked. <laughs> if you asked questions like... You're listening to The Live Drop. I'm Mark Valley, and this is one of my Berlinery episodes in which I catch up with an old friend, Dan Kane. Got to Berlin in 1983, lived through some of the major events like the Nicholson Incident and the LaBelle disco bombing in 1986 and the wall coming down in 1989. Dan was a civilian, fluent in German, and an expat with a variety of jobs in the American sector. He taught English, narrated for the AFN Berlin, 88FM, and taught photography for the U.S. Army. It's worth noting that his students were involved in surveillance operations with Attachment A, USMLM, and others. Dan talks about one fairly relentless recruitment approach by the Stasi on a road trip to Rostock, East Germany, and the realities of living in the spy capital of Europe in the mid-80s. This conversation was recorded a couple years ago in Dan's apartment in Neukölln. Bear with me, the audio quality sounds as if the room were bugged. Dan still lives in Berlin, and there will be links to his work in the show notes at thelivedrop.com. Begin transmission. I sent in the forms to the background check, which are really routine, and they, they were in no hurry. The last time I called, they said, oh, it was July. They said, that won't be back before Christmas. So I figured uh, this job that I was applying for, I'd never get because they weren't going to hold it open that long. And I had been trying to make money as teaching English. And one day the phone rang, and it was somebody who wanted English lessons. And he said, but there's a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, I live in East Berlin. I posted these, these at the JFK Institute at the university, at the English department. This is the Freie Universität? Yeah. yeah. So which is in the American sector. Yeah. And he told me that somebody he knew had been there and seen my ad and told him about it in East Berlin. And he called me to find out about English lessons. I was curious and I went over to talk to him, to meet him in East Berlin since he couldn't come to the West. Somebody in the West had been at the university and seen my ad offering English lessons and told the guy in East Berlin about it. He needed the English, he said, because there was a program in biology at the University of Utah, and some kind of exchange thing between the University of Utah and the University of East Berlin that he was applying for. But he had to get better, had to have better English. We can check with the University of Utah later. Yeah, <laughs> whether, whether that ever existed. You know? yeah. uh, I don't know how much of it was real. Right. You know, I'd read the John Le Carre books, and there was stuff like that all through this encounter and this story. So he, he said there's an ice cream shop near Friedrichstrasse, near the checkpoint of Friedrichstrasse, and we can meet there. So we met at this ice cream shop where there were... Uh, this is in the east, right? In the east. So you would just go through Checkpoint Charlie? Show no, no, we went through, he said go through uh, Friedrichstrasse station. There was a, a border there. There were S-Bonds that came from the west and ended there. And north-south, ran north and south through right. Friedrichstrasse, and the, the U6, yeah. So what did you, which did you take? I don't remember. It was spooky. You were inside East Berlin, but you were not able to go there without crossing the border. But you could change trains from upstairs to downstairs, uh, from the, the elevated S-Bahn to the underground S-Bahn. Right. It was like a, uh, a stairway, not a spiral staircase, but a stairway, one of these where you kept turning corners and going down like that. I was there with my friend Catherine, she was visiting, and we went into that ice cream shop, shop and there he was, 
Hans Joachim. And Hans Joachim. Yeah. Hans Joachim. Joachim. Like Joachim yeah. Phoenix, kind of. Or no, just yeah. Joachim. Joachim, yeah. With, yeah. A, with a dash, Hans Joachim. Okay. He was sitting there and uh, waiting for us, and uh, we joined him at the table, and a couple were sitting across him, at the, also at the same table, mechanically eating ice cream and listening to the whole thing. Right. Which was also what they, classic. What did they look like? They were, it was, it was a man and woman, total nondescript in their 40s. And then, uh, eating ice cream. They weren't enjoying the ice cream. Is that the giveaway? Well, they were, <laughs> they weren't talking to each other. Right. They were just eating the ice cream, eating the ice cream, watching it. So we talked with him and, and he invited us back to his apartment. We went there. Do you remember where this place was? The corner? Oh, sure. Friedrichstrasse. When you come down onto Friedrichstrasse from the train station, you can go, there's many exits, but the, the exit that goes down to Friedrichstrasse itself. Right. Uh, across, it kind of opens up underneath an overpass, right? Right. It's, you go down. Yeah. You're under the overpass, and this was directly across the street, and one door over or so. It's now it's you know like Probably an it's, or yeah, it's, uh, it's been a bunch of different things over the years, but right. And we went to his place at Rosa Luxemburg Platz, and he, it was a small apartment like a student would have, though. Probably not that any students would have had an apartment. So it's all the Volksbühne. Yeah. And you had biology textbooks. And and the story was, you know, he needed English. He wanted to go to Utah. He had some Western currency to pay me. And so I thought, well, why not? Every Tuesday for a while, I would go over there to his meet him. I'd cross over at one another checkpoint and go to Rosa Luxemburg Potts and, and spend an hour or two talking with him. And um, he gave me 50 marks, I think, for each trip and and it was fine it was pleasant and he didn't ask a lot of questions it wasn't probing or anything about stuff after a few weeks he said i know you like to travel and uh you know I, i'm running out of western currency but i could pay for small trips inside the east and that was one of the the perks of living here no matter what your nationality was if your residency was in west berlin you were eligible to get a special identity card that allowed you to travel in the East. It was a kind of a Cinderella thing. You had to be back by midnight. Right. But you could go anywhere. And it was very uh, bureaucratic free. You go to an office and say, tomorrow I want to go to Leipzig, or tomorrow I want to go to just East Berlin, or tomorrow I want to go wherever. Get a car, you can get anywhere. Yeah. There were places they wouldn't allow you to go. Um, like most of the border areas were off. Were. So like once we went to Potsdam, and once Potsdam, I remember, we went to San Susi, we looked at it, I've been there before, and uh, then we and no more ice cream. It was in the summer, and we sat down and had some ice cream. And a woman came over and asked me in Russian if the chair was free. And I had had some Russian, and I said, da. Oh, well, that was very interesting. Oh, you know Russian? I said, well, there are three semesters. So then one day, too, I, um, this is germane for what came later. I was in the gay part of the tear garden, and uh, it was really hot, and we were all lying there just baking, and then somebody from the park came and brought one of these uh, jet sprayers, water jet, and it's something that it sprays, and then, it, and then it moves a little and sprays again, and moves a little and sprays again. Like a lawn sprinkler. It's a, like, but it was huge. Right. And it, you know, it's 40 feet in the air. Like I say, it was really hot, and then so, and most people were naked, and some, and some guys got up and went under the, the water, and the speed of the water was not walking speed, it wasn't running speed, it was sort of jogging speed. And so these guys are jogging around in the circle, and it's exactly like, or very much like, ancient Greek vases. And so I uh, 
I had a camera and I, t- and I took a couple of pictures and I was reloading when they pulled the, they came and took the sprinkler away, but I got a few pictures. So later that day, I was in East Berlin with, with Joachim and I told him about that. Okay. Let's, let's germane for what came later. So then he's saying that he's running out of Western running and, uh, well, he already said that, you know, in the travel thing. And now he had a special deal for me. Where, where are you guys having this conversation right now? Well, the conversations were always in his apartment. What, could you describe his apartment? It had a lot of bookcases. It was a bed-sitter kind of place. I mean, most of East Berlin was pretty run down. It was a run-down area. It was just like everywhere else. It was nothing special. Did it appear that he lived there? Yeah. It's, uh, he would have been 28, I guess. What did he look like? Oh, he's just a skinny guy, kind of an Ichabod Crane type. Uh, Glasses, long hair. Gla- his his hair wasn't too long. He had a, a kind of a cheesy mustache. Uh, he was. The feeling was he was, or the feeling I got was he was not made for this this um, this kind of story to happen. He was somebody who was studying biology, and he wasn't somebody who was supposed to be a spy catcher or a spy or somebody. I don't think he was gay, but we never talked sexuality ever, and he never mentioned boyfriends or girlfriends or really any friends or any family. Uh, I think he said he was from uh, East Berlin, but I don't remember that for sure anymore. And he didn't ask me much about uh, family or friends. Uh, just as, if he did, it was at a very superficial level but, and not probing. Okay, and then comes the weekend. So he says, you know, I have uh, I have a deal for you. There's a, um, I know somebody who's a journalist, and he deals with foreigners all the time, he said. And he can set us up with a whole weekend on the, on the Baltic. I said, well... How is this going to work with visas and everything? Oh, he knows how to arrange it, he said. So I was thinking, well, that'd be interesting. And then I, when I was home, I uh, called once again about my security clearance. And that was when they said, oh, that won't be back till Christmas. So I figured, okay, I have nothing to lose. No matter what happens now on this weekend in the East, I have nothing to lose. I can't. There's nothing I can do that can wreck a situation that's already not going to work with getting the job. More background check than security claims because I wasn't doing a security job or anything. But the background check, oh, I won't be back till Christmas. This was July. So, okay, I figured I'm not risking anything. I'll go. And I went. So I go to Checkpoint Charlie. I show up. I have luggage. You know, and I said, I, he told me to say I wanted a day visa. But I showed up with luggage. That was not a problem. They didn't search the luggage. They were all smiles. They were waiting for me. I passed through Checkpoint Charlie. The Allies' position was, we want the borders to be open. And they didn't check anybody going in or out. At least, you know, they didn't stop anybody or ask for anything. I mean, everybody knew there was a CIA um, apartment above it that on the corner building there. That Which was one? The cafe? Or the cafe above the cafe, yeah, on the okay. second floor. That was an open secret. So I go in, and I don't remember, I guess if I went to his apartment right away or if we met somewhere else, but then big smiley guy shows up with a car. He said his name is Roland, but he doesn't give a last name, and he has a car. And he says, um, okay, kind of, I need your visa. What kind of car was it? it was a, oh, it was a... It was a um, not a Trabant? It's not a Trabant. It was a nice car. It was the nicer car they had there. So maybe right. it was a Lada. What, what did this guy Roland, what, was, what did he look like? Was he wearing... He wasn't, he was... Um, I'm picturing like Vander Fassbender or something. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't, he was, he was slick. Uh, he wasn't a grease. He was a smoothie. He had a big smile and gregarious and uh, instantly got you talking. Mm-hmm. A side issue. 
uh, or a side comment on this. After the pandemic, after it all changed, when they were looking for to find employment for everybody, had been in stuff that was no longer existed, like the Stasi. A favorite profession, a favorite retraining for the Stasi people was insurance sales, because they could talk to people. And I asked an insurance salesman here, somebody who sold me insurance, what his take on that was. And he said there were some people who joined us around then who were incredibly successful, who just outdid everybody else in sales. And we couldn't believe it. And then, well, we're from the East, and we're selling to people in the East, and, you know, it's all easy because they don't have insurance yet. But he said, but they also had the goods on all kinds of people, and they more or less blackmailed them into buying insurance. <laughs> that was his take on it. Yeah. So when you got it, when you went over there, you would get a piece of paper that you had to hand in when you went back. And he took that piece of paper from me, but I wouldn't give him my passport. He said, I'll take care of this. So he turned that in. And now I still have my passport, but I had no record of crossing the border. Well, I had no way to get back, and I had no proof of why I was there, anything about why I was there. And uh, we hopped in the car and drove up to the coast, which took about three, four hours. The roads weren't great. And the whole time he's questioning me and asking all kinds of probing questions about where I'm from and what I do. And, and Juan Joaquim, is he still in the car with you? He's in the car with us in the back seat. And he's just asking one question after another and probing all kinds of stuff. Interestingly, he wanted to know about the two German roommates I had who were a, a couple, a, a man and woman, architect and a, and a city planner. He asked a lot of questions about them, but he didn't ask one question about my American roommate. Didn't bring her up or anything, which was um, kind of surprising. But um, they never asked about her. Eventually, we get up there. Who's to, your American roommate? Or, uh, uh, I don't want to name her. Okay, let's call her Marie. Marie, okay. Right. And uh, Marie had a job with the Americans already in the, a part she couldn't talk about. And they never asked about her, which was odd. Did they know about her? Did they not know about her? Who knows? Okay, so asking me question after question after question. Okay, eventually we pull into uh, Varnamunda, where the Hotel Neptune is, this uh, skyscraper hotel, which was a show place in the East, was built and with Swedish money, I think. He said, we're, we're checking in here, but we're all going to be named Müller. All three of us are being check, are checking in as Herr Müller. The three Müllers. The three Müllers, yeah. And so we gather the front desk, and he handles everything. And the, the guy says, oh, hello, we see each other again. And so this was not the first time. And then it was, you know, it was getting on, so we went to dinner. It was a pizza place or something in the basement or in the hotel where we went. And the, and he was just probing, question after, really an interrogation, but still friendly. And, um, and we were drinking beer and he wanted to switch. He wanted to order a bottle of wine for me to drink. And I just said, no, I just don't want to do that. And, and, uh, at some point, it was just too much. And I said, look, I know what's going on here. You know, this is, I, I don't, I, you know, I t I'm telling you no right now. Because he had started to um, say, you know, I've been, all this time I've been, I've been asking myself, you know, how can I ask him or how can I bring this up or would he be interested? You know, it costs us so much money to send people to the reporters, journalists to the States. You know, I wonder, maybe you'd be interested in going to labor conventions and sending us information and report it. It's ridiculous, you know, but the, uh, and that's when I said, no, look, I know what's happening. Or it's really happening here. It's not labor conventions and I'm not going to play. 
We what? Think. What are you talking about? You somebody reads the Bill Zeitung, the Boulevard, the newspaper, like the Fox News papers would be now. I said, no, 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 forget it. Look, I'm telling you no right now. Well, then let me back up and uh, no, then uh, no. He, he was like, oh my God, you know, if that's what you think's going on, we, 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 we don't have to go there at all. Anyway, he had been planning to spend the whole weekend with us. But after that, it's, he suddenly was called back to Berlin, East Berlin, and we were on our own. Joachim said, well, we'll be here for three days. So that's paid for anyway. And so we were there for three days, and uh, but they never let up. Uh, there was stuff happening wherever we went. We went here, we went there. We went to um, Hiddensee, Stralsund, and, and uh, Hiddensee. We're walking along the beach, and suddenly a guy standing there as we approach, he's all standing all alone, pulls off all of his clothes and runs naked into the water. <laughs> and he was really, really a beautiful man. And that was interesting. I was certainly watching that. So that was Hiddensee. And then did he a, say anything? To no, he didn't say anything. Just nobody started. said anything. The area to ourselves, except for this guy, and he was there for me, really. Running circles around you naked. Well, trying just, to get your no, attention. just he, he didn't have my full attention, but he didn't get <laughs> naked until we got near him. He was just waiting. But then that night, or one of the nights, yeah, I was coming back from Hiddensee to Stralsund, and we were hungry, and we were going to take the train back to Barnamunda, but we had time to have some dinner. And he said, I know at the Rathaus here, in the Ratskeller, there's a good restaurant. So we went to the Ratskeller, and there was a line of people waiting. He said, he said I'm a Dede Bürger. I'm a citizen of East Germany. I know what we should do. We don't stand in line. We just walk in. So we walk in, and there were, magically, two places at a table open. And we sat down at that table, and it was a table for six people. Next to me was a woman, and then... Obviously, her boyfriend, they were all over each other at the head of the table. And at the other end was Joachim. And across from us were more or less the same people who'd been eating the ice cream, who didn't right. say anything, but right. watched us the whole time, middle-aged or in their 40s. So pretty soon, there were no other empty places in the restaurant. And nobody objected to us passing, I don't know, 10 people in line and just marching in and taking these two places, these two seats. Anyway, we order and we're starting to eat and... And I could see from the way the woman was, from her gestures and everything, that she was American. And uh, she's speaking German with an accent to these people. And then she turns to me and says in English, Where are you from in the States? And I said, I'm from South Dakota. I'm from North Dakota. So her name was Rebecca, I think she said. And, the, um, and she was living in Dresden. And she'd met this guy. And uh, they were trying to get him uh, an exit visa so because she was she was here for a year or there for a year or whatever and they wanted to get married and there was a good chance they could get him an exit visa and i think part of getting him an exit visa was being was sitting there at that table and talking to me that was the the idea so she said so I, yeah i've lived here for one year or two years and now i want to we want to move back to the states and i forget what the story was and and she turned to me and said um, you know so i live here and i teach english do you think you'd ever want to do something like that? And I was just like, oh my God, look at look at how organized all this is. Right. And uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, it just was too much. And um, I said to him, "We got to go." We were done eating anyway, I think. And by then, and I, I forget what else she said, but it just went on and on. And so we got up and left, and I nearly forgot my flash. He said, "Oh, you forgot your flash." <laughs> so I grabbed it, and then on a, on another train to somewhere. We were sitting in the, the train was mostly empty. 
We're sitting in the train, an African student wanders into our compartment. Oh, yeah, I live here. I'm from Africa. And looked at me. And, oh, you're American. You think you ever live here? <laughs> this is this chorus of people lining up to uh, directed at me. And then we got back to the hotel. I don't remember which night was which anymore, but he said, uh, let's walk, uh, let's go down there. Um, there was another ice cream place up on the hill. And these stars, you love ice cream. They do. And so we were up there on the hill on the cliffs looking down with the ice cream and, uh, and a bunch of boys are swimming naked below us. And (laughs) it's just, you know, it was a show for me everywhere. And the, and then walking along the beach back to the hotel, we had the beach to ourselves again. Everything, we always had everything to ourselves. And there was a group of guys in uniform milling around the water's edge kind of nervously. They were all in uniform. It was all men. There were probably a dozen of them. And as we got near them, they all pulled off all their clothes. And it was like the, <laughs> it was like the East German Olympic team. They, they were just incredibly beautiful men. And the, it was a, a trap though. And this was related to my telling him about the Tiergarten and the, and the men in the water. This was why they were doing this. I photographed that. I might photograph this. Did you have a camera with you? I had my camera with me the whole time. But I never photographed these, any of these guys. Why? Well, I, it all happened too fast in one way. But the other thing was I was very hesitant to photograph people I didn't know. And if I had, and I, I would have been arrested for photographing people in uniform. And they would have used that against homosexuals. They would have used If the Americans had ever said, What's, what happened to this citizen of ours over there? Why is he arrested? Well, he photographed uh, border guard people in uniform, which is against the law here. Everybody knows that. Yeah. And he was up on the coast, and nobody knows how he got there, and he didn't have any, you know, there's no records of him. It just says, none of it makes any sense. And then he broke the law. You could feel you were trying to be, they were trying to trap you. They were trying to trap me. And As a kid, what's interesting is they were trying to trap you because you were gay, but it seems like they were trying to trap you as a photographer. Yeah, well, they wanted well, yeah. not playing along, and I might as well be punished. Or they could have come and said, "Look, we will arrest you unless you work for us." They could have done that too. So you were aware of all this while this was going. Well, Did I was you share just, any of it with Yakim. Or- I was not going to talk to he. Uh, the next day after Roland went back. He said, you know, what he was talking about last night, you don't have to take that too seriously. Or I don't know, I don't know what he said. He was embarrassed. And I just changed the subject. I didn't, would not say anything about it. I held my cards to my chest on this. I was telling this story once to uh, my nephew and his friends when they were visiting. And they said, well, how much money, were, what were they offering anyway? And I said, I never asked. If you ask, then you're negotiating. I would give well, you them, had read your Lacari. Well, I mean, I also just instinct, you know, of... Uh, what you right. don't do. And and then uh, after we were at the beach there at the Varna Mindau. There's a picture of me reading Thomas Mann. <laughs> and was my, my cover story was that I was here writing my dissertation on Thomas Mann. So I had a copy of one of the books with me. And he took a picture of me, which I have. And so were you doing a dissertation on Thomas Mann? Yeah, that was why I had a grant to do that. And that was the reason that you gave for... Let me just roll back a minute. How could you take a three-day trip and you had to be back by midnight? Well, that was the thing. The whole thing was an exception. He took right. my, he, this, this unknown man took my piece of paper and cashed it in as though I had returned to West Berlin. So in a way you had already been compromised. Yeah. But I, I didn't have anything they wanted yet. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't worth it. So we just had, and we had English lessons every day and, and it was hot summer. It was beautiful weather and 
we had a good time and we just acted as though everything was peachy hunky dory and then uh he said oh i got a message from roland he we don't have to take the train back to east berlin we're going to um he'll come and pick us up so he came he drove all the way up and picked us up and drove all the way back and all the way back he was after me about reagan and star wars and nuclear winter and on and on about america and war and how i was on all these uh, hot button issues then and i've wound up telling him recounting the story of the novel failsafe which is uh is to happens during the kennedy administration when khrushchev is head of the soviet union and um a, a nuclear plane there's an accident and a plane with a with an atomic weapon gets through to bomb moscow and the americans tell the soviets it's on its way we can't stop it and they the russians do everything they can to stop it the americans give them all the information they can give them to stop it it doesn't work and moscow is obliterated and to prevent the world from being obliterated the americans destroy new york with an atomic bomb and i spent most of that car trip <laughs> retelling that story as a way of uh, just keeping the conversation moving <laughs> So we get back to East Berlin and he says, "Okay, I need your passport." I said, "I'm not going to give you your pa- my passport." "Okay, well, then just I write write down the details for me with your name and the number and make sure everything's correct." And so I gave him that and Joachim and I had one more English lesson and then he comes back with a, a new piece of paper that claimed that I had entered East Berlin that morning at 7:30. And they drove me as close as they could get to Checkpoint Charlie, dropped me off, and I went to Checkpoint Charlie. And I think, you know, my god, what's what's going to happen now? <laughs> Is this going to work? And I come in and they uh, they they look at me with my fake piece of paper and my luggage that I've been allegedly in East Berlin for one day with two with two suitcases and it was all smiles. Everything's great. They didn't worry about me spending my money or bringing any East German money out. And I just waved right through and I left checkpoint Charlie and or left the eastern part and back then there was this maze you had to walk like this yeah yeah and you'd come up and a door would buzz and you'd be let out and then another door would buzz and you'd be let out and i was wondering you know is this all going to work am i going to really make it out of here and i did and when i got through it was like i i felt like the pope i wanted to kiss the ground was <laughs> berlin and i went home and my american roommate who should have been at work was not she was there the german roommates were not there and i told her the whole story and she said oh my god i have to i have to pass all this along so she passed all of it along the next day and came that night and said okay tomorrow you need to come there you need to go there you need to tell people all this this whole story okay so i went there you went to clearly clearly general building it was yes so when i went into east berlin <laughs> when i went into east berlin <laughs> it's like it's my be, goddamn story okay. yeah it's like <laughs> your goddamn story it's, it is my goddamn story so in east berlin It was all smiles. And there was Hans Joachim was his name, the name he gave me. I saw his ID also. Old ID looked bad. And Roland, only the first name. And I'm just all smiles going in. I get to Clay LA and two, two men are standing there meet, to meet me. And one of them pulls out his ID and says, "I'm so and so and I'm taking this man in." I didn't have to show anything. They didn't want me to show anything. And we went over to the Is the 6941st are these the German guards or were they Americans doing security in the It was German it? guards. Yeah, cuz they knew they were already compromised. So I showed no ID when I went in. 
And we went to the building on the right, the first building on the right, which was, you know, a no-go place. Building four, yeah. Yeah, a no-go place with screens, heavy wire things on all the windows, and, and uh, nobody ever went in or out that you ever saw. And they said, wait a minute, and uh, and I'd come and pick me up. That was it. Uh, or Marie. And uh, she came over and picked me up at the PX, and we went in. And before we went into the building, they said, uh, just a minute, and they looked in. And they waited till the hallway was clear, because I wasn't allowed to see whoever was in there either. And we went in and went down the hall a little ways, and they distracted me with something, some comment, and got, asked me some question. I was answering it, and then I realized that this woman Marie was not there; she had faded away. And uh, um, they took me in and they debriefed me, and I told all this whole story as I told you, or I'm telling it now. And uh, it was the same thing. It was two men, one with the full name, one with only the first name. They questioned and questioned and questioned and questioned. And then they also said, oh, you know, this whole time it's, we've been th- you know, sitting here wondering, maybe he'd like to work for us, you know, and would you like to go back over there? And, and there was, a, however, a, a, like a warning. There was a little piece of paper on the wall from um, Graham, a quote from Graham Greene that said, counterintelligence people are the least trustworthy, something like the least trustworthy people in the world. They will betray you (laughs) at the slightest, when it's to their slightest advantage, they will betray you. And here I was sitting talking to two of them. So I waffled on that question. And then I went home. And the next day, oh, I know what I'd done. I was trying to do a workaround with the problem of the background check. And my friend told me that they, they did make exceptions if they really wanted somebody they would do a waiver on the background check until it would, until it came through. So I had sent a letter to my future boss saying, I've been trying to get this thing done. It's just taking forever. Uh, can we meet and talk about a waiver? That letter came back. It was addressed the wrong way or whatever. I, it didn't get through. So the day after I called, the day after the debriefing in Building 4, I called her directly and said to this future boss and said, I've been trying to send a letter to you. It came back. It's about uh, the background check, and you know, I'd like to meet with you. And she said, why don't you come in today? The background check came through this morning. And I went in for the interview as soon as I could get there. It was, it was soon enough for her. And she hired me while I was sitting there. Later, when I had the job, we were told, you don't hire people during the interview. Tell them you're going to, you need to think about it. You're talking to other people. But the background check was not going to be through till Christmas came through that morning, and she hired me on the spot. And after that, I had the two jobs, teaching college and teaching and running the photo center. And I never went back to East Berlin until after the wall came down. But Joachim kept calling the house for another six months or so. But if I answered it, I'd just hang up. Is that why you don't answer the phone unless you know who it is? I just I just hate the phone. When I retire, I'm getting rid of it. So I know you probably played this over in your head a few times. You say, oh, this could have been this and this could have been that. But was there anything else that happened, any other coincidence besides, you know, Joachim calling you all the time that you think might have been related to that? Neither the two East Germans nor was the guy's name. And I forget what the full name of the other guy was. They couldn't bring up sexuality either. Nobody did. Wait, who was the man with only the one name? of the Among the Americans. Oh, right. There was somebody who gave his real name, apparently, and the other guy was just with was not his real name. And he only said that name. They were Americans. You they were them. Americans, yeah. And one of them, the main guy, I heard later, he was then later promoted. I was told that, you know, you wouldn't meet him now. He wouldn't, when you'd meet now, he's too, he's become too high level. 
they they didn't know what to. Oh, these are the guys. These are the the counterintelligence guys in Building Four, right? Roughly, do you think they were CIA? Do you think they were Seven Sixty Six? Did they appear to you like they'd been military guys in civilian clothes, or that they were definitely had a civilian vibe? They had a, a they had civilian vibes, but uh, I don't know that story. Later, when I wanted to see my Stasi files, there aren't any, and there's different reasons, potential reasons. One was, hey, it failed. Why would they have a file on you? You just blew them off, and you never went back to East Berlin. And then, uh, and it's a failure on their record. They've put a lot of money and time into this, and it went nowhere. So it's a blemish on their record. Why would they have a file? Another is, you're an American. CIA went over and bought all the American files. Everybody knows that. They went over it. They paid for them. You didn't have a Stasi file. No, I didn't. And that one explanation was that. The other was that the Americans bought them all. And that was... Uh, they discovered some people who had done some Americans or people who worked for the Americans who'd done bad stuff and people landed in prison for that. There was an English woman I heard about who worked in the office that had that dealt with uh, soldiers who passed bad checks. Yeah. And she was working for them and, and uh, she wound up in prison. And that they discovered that when they bought those files. So the Americans, so they took all the files of the Americans and the civilians. There was a bunch, including a lot of civilian files. And under Clinton and Schroeder, Schroeder brought it up and wanted the files back. And Clinton said, okay, we'll do that. We'll send them back. But all the Americans sent back was a CD with a list, right? supposedly. And the list only went, didn't even do the whole alphabet. It missed it. Some part of the middle section was gone. So my file might be there in the state somewhere. Right. Or a lot of files, there was an agreement. A lot of files were simply destroyed after the wall came down. They sat there and, and uh, to prevent a lot of uh, nights of long knives and vengefulness and proof of stuff, they, uh, they destroyed a lot of files by dumping them in water and having them disintegrate. You know, I heard that most of the, how Fonstadt, I don't know if it was number one or whatever the directorates are, but there was the one in charge of international espionage. And Misha Wolf is his group. That he was successful in destroying almost all of his files. Yeah. So if this wasn't like a domestic case, chances are it was they destroyed it. They, yeah. They shredded lots of stuff and they put a lot of the shredded stuff back together. Uh, and lots of people where it wasn't espionage, their files were destroyed and they have copies of their files. Like I've, I know people who have copies of their files. But there, I heard there's a lot of redundancy, though. So what, one file that might have been destroyed, there could be other parts of it in other places. Would you be interested in getting yours still? Sure, sure. I, I guess the Freedom of Information Act, I could ask for it through there. But I first got a letter saying there was nothing, and then I, and then they said you can try again later. I did try again later, and I never received an answer. So I think, I mean, I think the better bet is the Freedom of Information Act. So I just kept away from East Berlin. The first time I tried the corridor where they wouldn't interfere with you, the car, I was, I had, I had a ride with somebody and we were pulled over and somebody very ostentatiously pulled out a camera and took a picture of me in the car. Because you know what, anybody who drove through the corridor that you had to give the Soviets their name. For the army, yeah. But for civilians, no. You didn't have your name written down anywhere? Oh, sure. You were, but you see, this was the Berlin Accords. This was not, I, I was a civilian employee and my official employer was the Senate. Even though I worked, I was like farmed out to the army. You could see it that way. There were 2,000 civilian positions like this. You were paid by the Berlin Senate, but you worked at the army. The Germans had uh, no control over 
what you did. If the army wanted to hire you, you didn't need a work permit, even though you're working for the Senate. And the, the office was the Senatsamt für Besatzungslasten, for occupational costs. While you were an instructor there, and some of the people that you you trained, I mean, you don't have to give names, but um, you worked as a photography instructor. I mean, photography is an integral part of the surveillance that we had going on. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. A third of my students in the first group were in intelligence groups. They were either with the mission, or they were with uh, Detachment A, or they were with uh, uh, Teufelsberg, or or they worked for the Air Force. And uh, for some of them, some of them had been photographers longer than I had, and were older than I had, but it was still, they, it was promotion points for them. Okay, and one guy who worked for the mission in Potsdam, when I was teaching the second semester, which included a lot of uh, special applications, including intensifying negatives, an underexposed negative you can intensify, right. which enhances it. You know, this is all before digital photography. Underexposed negatives, because they didn't know how to expose film, everything was pretty much underexposed. If you intensify it, you increase the contrast and thus enhance detail. Once I taught him that, he came back and said his boss was very happy about this. <laughs> that it was a very good thing and he was really interested in it. Do you remember who that was, that mission guy? He might still live in Berlin. I think he married a German woman. Could you tell if somebody was just coming in there like me as a hobbyist or if somebody was showing up for... Well, they, they, were, they could tell me that, that was their, they were photographers for whatever. Right. They, they were, uh, that was not a secret. It's like, oh, we're taking pictures of Russian content. Well, they wouldn't tell me what they were doing, but that they were photographers was, I mean, the, the photographers also had to copy documents and, yeah. and maintain files of stuff. And yeah, because I remember you were telling me, like, oh, yeah, you can use 30. I was like, how do you take pictures at night? You're like, oh, it's, you know, 3,200 and you can just push it a couple stops. And, yeah. But don't go three or four. You might just kind of lose it, right? Yeah. So that must have been pretty popular with the mission guys. Um, you can talk to. <laughs> I can tell you some stuff. He was uh, he was head of the Air Force photography, and he had clearance for everything. He was the only American working there, so he was the one with the clearance. There was one thing he could he did tell me was um, once he they needed to find something out, and the way to do it was to use infrared film. So they had him go at the highest point and at, to- at Tempelhof and photograph in the direction of the east with color infrared film, which would have picked up something in the air that they needed to know about. So what did you know about Detachment A? Well, I mean, from the guy that this this main student there, he would tell me little stuff about it. But it was hush-hush. It was not supposed to be there. It broke an agreement with the Soviets to have them there. And they yeah. they couldn't they couldn't talk about it. And they tried to be more secret than they were. Then it could be like the apartments. Since um, you move into an apartment, there wouldn't be a new phone line. You just you take, well, like I did here, I took the number of the, of the people from before. Otherwise, you had to wait weeks or months for a new line. So you just took over the old number. So the, I'm sure every apartment was bugged. All yeah. the phone lines were bugged. And there was no way to keep it a secret who lived where because the doorbells had to be marked with the family name so that the kids could find their way home. And he would dis- they would disappear, say, it's TDY, we've got to go. And um, they couldn't talk about where they'd been and what they'd done. And right. They didn't have military haircuts or or very, and they didn't usually wear uniforms, and uh, so they they weren't recognizable as troops even to others. The stories that would seep out too was that the mission guys were were bored and uh, and cowboys, and I, I wrote this to you too that uh, they constantly pushing the envelope. And a woman I know dated one of them, and she was a civilian, 
And he just drove over to Potsdam over the Glienicke Bridge one day. And that was also a breaking the agreement. And they just didn't check it very closely. It was the first time anybody could think of that that had happened or worked. And that was just, you know, they just figured they'd do whatever they felt like doing. And that led to Nicholson. And das Ober ist nicht so, ist nicht so fest. Das kann sein, Otto ist besser. Hey, you were in Berlin when that, when that incident happened up in Ludwigsburg. What was the reaction of the community here? Well, um, officially, of course, it was a terrible thing and he was totally innocent and, uh, but nobody believed that. And officially his widow had returned to the States, but she was still around for quite a while. And it had a direct effect on me. The head of the Potsdam, uh, the commander there, his daughter was getting married and they'd hired me, they hired me to photograph it. And there was going to be a rehearsal dinner in Potsdam. And I was supposed to be at that too. I was supposed to go over the Glenica Bridge too. But then Nicholson got killed. The Russians weren't giving any special entrance exit permits. There had been routine before. But there was a story that was, that was wild. There was a woman here named Jean Pollock. Jean was uh, from Scotland and she, was a storyteller, and she lived in a wild fantasy world. But she was also a head of, uh, she was in charge of the advertising for the recreation division. And our advertising was never getting out. So my boss had me call her to find out what was going on. And she said, <laughs> just like my boss, why don't you come in and talk to me about it? And the next thing I knew, I was, she liked my voice on the phone. And the next thing I knew, I was doing the radio ads. And I got to know Jean fairly well. And she was nearing retirement and um, then did retire. And she was very close friends with a woman named Maggie, who was head of the library system. They'd sit together, they'd get together and drink. And when Jean did retire, Maggie, who was high enough in those days, the woman who was head of the libraries, had a huge villa assigned to her with an enormous lawn and everything. She put on a party, a goodbye, a farewell party for Jean there. And she brought in bagpipe players because Jean was Scottish. And a Scottish aristocrat, too, supposedly. And there was this enormous party and a farewell, a teary farewell. And then Jean was going to leave the next day and move to the States where she had a house in San Francisco. And friends of somebody, their kids were touring the States, and they were going to stay with Jean in San Francisco a month later. They, the kids get to the house, they ring the bell, there's nobody there. Nothing happens. Nobody can figure it out. Where's Jean? Nobody has any idea where Jean is. And then the guy who tells me this, who was friends with all these people, said, And then I had an idea, and he called her number in Brits, and she was there. She hadn't left Berlin. She had no attention on him. Was <laughs> <laughs> it just an excuse for a party? Well, who knows what she was up to. Her stories were just too wild. And uh, telling me about meeting Eleanor Roosevelt, telling me about this, telling me about that, and how her son was inherited some Scottish title and, and a huge estate in Scotland. Right, and, right. But um, have you ever seen the film The Himmel, The Himmel über Berlin? Yeah. Yeah. You remember the scene? Peter Falk is somewhere choosing a hat. Yeah. And the lady's standing there. That's Jean Pollock. Really? Yeah. There was also some kind of something in the American sector in Berlin, which may be in Berlin all, all over, but you didn't want to know too much about other people. I was almost accepted that you didn't ask. There was a limit to how much you asked about someone, even like with, like with civilians. You know, you don't know if they murdered somebody or, or if they were on like a, you know, a fellowship grant or something. The guy I told you about yesterday with the seven passports, that was something he said. You didn't ask each other questions because everybody was reporting to somebody. And so just, he didn't ask partly because everybody was doing it, partly because nobody would tell you the truth. And it just showed you didn't know how life worked. 
<laughs> if you asked questions like that. It was so naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously you're... Rookie question. Mm. Yeah, what are you doing here? Yeah, did you notice that? Did you notice like after that story or after that experience with... Figured it was probably Stasi right off the bat, but did that affect your personal relations in town afterwards? I mean, did you... Well, you my would- apartment was searched and the phone was bugged. And I was indiscreet about some of this stuff on one night on a phone call to my parents. And the next day, my roommate was told she had to move out of there. Th- there was a couple of things that, you know, you came home and a couple of things were changed that were never a certain way or always a certain other way. And now they're not. And, uh, oh, the other thing was in the apartment with the, with the other three people, one day I was home alone, the doorbell, it was the third floor. The doorbell rings. Somebody, a grease, this grease, greasy looking guy is standing outside our apartment door on the third floor. Saying, oh, I, I, I got a, you know, I have a girlfriend, a woman friend who lives here. I'm just not sure which apartment. And on and on and on about this. And, and, uh, so, oh, I mean, how'd you get up to the third floor? Why are you ringing this bell? Other people are here. Uh, so I just, I have no idea. This doesn't match the description of anybody. Yeah. I don't know what that means, you know, if they, why they would do it. But, um, it's kind of, does it feel kind of like a violation though? Yeah, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's, uh, and you don't know who does it. It happened three or four times afterwards. I would meet somebody, and they would get in touch. They would come back to me a while later, saying, "I was in a cafe, and there was this uh, person who started rant- ranting and raving about the CIA and the KGB, and and, um, and how her boyfriend is a spy, and on and on and on." And I said, "Well, I told this guy, you know, this was '86, I think. I said, uh, you know, I have to report this, and I did, and I talked to somebody in the CIA." <laughs> And that was like a coincidence. They they said, the guy listened to the story and he said, wait a minute, was that woman's name Rita? I said, yes, I think he said her name was Rita. <laughs> he closed the book. Everybody knew about Rita. Really? <laughs> she, was, she was somebody who would get drunk and start raving in bars. <laughs> there, was, there was no story there. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so you're like the reluctant spy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting. You know, it had, it had a... a it had a flare. There was this, always this background noise of what's really going on. With also the the system of identity cards, there were people who had ID cards who, who could go to um, Truman Plaza and the PX and so on. And then there were people who had uh, cards like I did, which were employee uh, civilian employee cards. You could I couldn't shop at the PX or do any or have hospital rights or anything. But I did have a card an ID card solely for the duty train that I wasn't allowed to keep unless I was actually on a duty train. And then I also had this thing that East Berlin, the East Germans issued, allowing me to travel in the, in the East. So there was all these systems of, um, of identification and what it allowed you to do. And once a bunch of my students went to Helmstedt to parachute or something, there was some place you could go and pay a hundred euros or whatever. And some of them could go, in military vehicles, and some of them in civilian vehicles, and some of them could use this exit, and some of them could use that one, and a duty train um, thing to a photography uh, workshop. And it was at a time, it was after LaBelle, so the, the LaBelle bombing, so the, the security was pretty high. And I was in a, it was in Kirschgrens or somewhere unusual off the beaten path, but the, uh, but a stop on the duty train. The duty train pulls in, it's marked Mainz marked with civilian markings it was with civilian destinations that had nothing to do with the duty train right a door opens and a soldier says mr kane enter the train now i got on i was the only one scheduled to get on and 
The door closed and we took off. It was um, as low profile as possible. So anything else you want to throw in? This is fascinating stuff. Um, I did see Joachim again after the wall came down. Buried the lead. Uh, but I, it was on the, it was in the subway and I was, and the subway was packed and he was, um, away from me and I was exhausted and I, and under pressure to get somewhere fast. I didn't speak to him. I really wish I had. In what, what station? Oh, it was, it was, um, Halish's tour. Oh, he was in the West. I would have asked him, you know, what's, uh, what was true there? <laughs> you know, what, what really, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. Because. You know, he would have heard my voice on the radio all the time with the, those ads afterwards. Oh, that's right, yeah. And it was their favorite station. He obviously hadn't gone to Utah. No, uh, I mean, he looked fine. He just, you know, we were all in our 30s then. And, uh... Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. You're welcome.